got two quotes here and one from Gavin McBride. I got a sleeper in London, then a train to Harwich before a ferry to Rotterdam, a train to Maastricht, two nights in a hotel boat, then a train to Luxembourg with a train to Metz. Pish the whole time. <laughs> 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 There's another one. He just says here, got pished in departures at Glasgow Airport, pished in the plane to Paris, pished in the train to Metz, pished in the Crystal and Metz, pished in the train back. At some point, some football broke out, mystifying. This is what KLF is about. Also known as the Justified Ancients of Lulu. Furthermore, known as the Jams. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Draw, Lose or Draw. This episode is going to look back on Partick Thistle's last European adventure. It's now been 25 years since Thistle competed in the Intertotal Cup. Uh, some of our younger listeners might not know about the Intertotal Cup because it's been scrapped for some time now. So here's David to tell you a little bit more about the tournament. The Intertoto Cup was invented in 1961 by Eric Persson, the chairman of Malmo, Austrian coach Karl Rappan, who had coached the Swiss national team in the 1938 and 1954 FIFA World Cups, and Ernst B. Tommen, who was the founder of the Fairs Cup, which was then the UEFA Cup and now the Europa League, and also the inventor of the football pools. Another thing our younger listeners might not be aware of, or some of our more forgetful listeners, are the football pools. So here's David to explain the links to the football pools to the Intertoto Cup. So the football pools is basically a sort of accumulator where you would have 49 games, you would pick 12 of them that you thought would be a score draw. So it would be 1 each 2 2 for example. Um, and you would win quite a lot of money. The person who got the most right won money. Uh, you would pay your money every week. A man would come round with a form and your, your granny would do it. Um, every, lots of people did it at the time. It was very, very popular. So the Intertotal Cup basically came out of this because in June, July, when there's no games, there's no games to play the pools on. So this competition was devised for an excuse to have games to have pools coupons for, basically. In fact, the name Intertoto is devised from the German term Toto, which was German for the football pools. There was quite a big fuss about it because um, it had been in pools coupons in previous years where you'd see intertotal games during the summer, I think, along with... It was some, something, some kind of European gambling thing in, in the same way as we would use the uh, Australian games for the football pools. Um, Europe would use these intertotal cup matches, which were basically just a friendly, and then UEFA decided to make it or uh, give it an access path to the UEFA Cup. So two teams that one through the competition consisting of group stages followed by knockout rounds would qualify for the first round of the UEFA Cup. So chances of getting all the way there were pretty slim, but it was still um, an avenue to proper European football, if you like. Essentially, at its heart, the Intertoto Cup was a tournament for clubs who wouldn't normally get into European competitions, so they weren't in the European Cup or the Fierce Cup or the Cup Winners' Cup at the time. It was actually branded the Cup for the Cupless by the Swiss press. The idea behind it was teams that were not going to win their league championship, were not going to win their national cup competition, were going to get to compete for a trophy, and were going to get to do it on a European away day. They were going to get to go to places like Germany, Poland, all these sort of places, and possibly win a tournament. The irony of the Intertoto Cup is that there was actually no cup for most of its tenure. For many years, it would be 12 group stage winners would receive a cash prize of between 10,000 and 15,000 Swiss francs, and that was that. 
At the time Thistle were playing in the Intertotal Cup, we didn't even get so much as a certificate. That came in the mid-2000s, and the trophy was only there for a year or two before the end. So at the time Thistle were playing, if they had won the tournament, they wouldn't have had anything to lift. Nowadays it sounds pretty far-fetched for Partick Thistle to compete in any European competition. So why were they in the Intertotal Cup in 1995? So Thistle were the first ever Scottish club to play in the Intertotal Cup. Before 1995 it was unofficial, it wasn't a UEFA tournament. So it was only certain countries that appeared in it. Your your Germany's, your Romania's, Yugoslavia, Poland, lots of Eastern European countries. However, in 1995 UEFA decided to take control of the tournament. And what they did as well is that they extended it to countries who weren't competing before. So in this case... Countries like Scotland and England, as well as a lot of the new countries that have came out of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism, they were extended an invite to basically join this tournament. They dangled the carrot of a UEFA Cup qualification spot for the three winners of the tournament. This meant that a club like Thistle, or Sheffield Wednesday down south, or Heerenveen in Holland, or Cologne in Germany, now had another route into the UEFA Cup. Um, I, I think we were probably the only ones that were, were up for it that year. Um, (laughs) I think it was probably at the start of that process of UEFA starting to shake up the the club cup competitions because it used to be European Cup, European Cup Winners Cup, UEFA Cup trying to involve, you know, as as European football was growing I think just finding more ways to, to allow clubs to have some form of access and obviously that's gone in different directions now with the Europa League and various aspects and it's under review again so I, th- I think we were just the willing participant to represent Scotland at that time I always remember the Intertotal Cup as being like a sort of competition if you wanted to enter it you could as long as you were a top flight side, a lot of Scottish sides didn't really enter it but Thistle were definitely the first one but Hibs have entered it a couple of times Dundee have entered it but a lot of, it's been treated with a lot of short shrift by Scottish clubs for whatever reason I've never really understood it With Scotland now accepting invitations in the hope of a UEFA Cup spot it was up to the best place qualifier to enter or as luck would have it the fifth best qualifier The Intertotal Cup place was awarded to the highest placing non-European qualifier in this case which would have been Hibs Hibs had finished third that year but declined to take up the invitation for the tournament Fourth place was Celtic, who had won the Scottish Cup and therefore qualified for the Cup Winners' Cup already, so they didn't take the place up either. It then transferred to Falkirk, who were in fifth, who also declined it. And then Hearts, in sixth place as well, also declined to participate. And finally, Kilmarnock, in seventh place, refused a berth in the competition. It then fell to eighth place Thistle, who gladly accepted the invitation to participate in the Intertotal Cup. So how did Thistle fans view the Intertotal Cup? Did they see it as a serious chance to win a competition? Or were they just looking to go abroad and sun themselves and have some fun against teams that they've never played before? I think at, at that point, as a football fan, you think you probably think rationally about what impact is this going to have on the next season. And that was one of the biggest considerations at the time was, this is going to occupy our summer possibly cause a bit of you know fatigue for some of the players and might it cause us problems further down the line which um you could argue it, it, it did but and I think I think there was I mean I was 16 at the time so it's hard to remember like 
the day of the draw or whatever like that. But there was je- there was definitely excitement that we were doing something a bit different. It felt very very thistle. In terms of um, thoughts in the intertotal, I remember um, at the time it being a little bit of a, a joke competition. My friends in Glasgow, other than my thistle pals, are all to a man Celtic supporters. Never let uh, an opportunity to take the Michael go. Uh, so when we were drawn in the intertotal. Um, and, and I even suggested that I might go to one of the games. It was just a bit of a laughing stock. But in terms of expectations for going, um, it just seemed like too good an opportunity to miss. Um, having only really sort of seriously started watching Thistle maybe seven, eight, nine years before that, and um, just sort of seen abject failure upon abject failure. So I thought any any chance for a bit of European glamour would be would be more than welcome. <laughs> there was a little bit of knowledge, but you know you wouldn't. It was seen as a, a really, really tough way to get into the, the UEFA Cup at the time. I think it got you into a few progress. So we'd be lying if we said we knew loads about the Intertotal Cup. We just knew it was a bit of a mad adventure and that it was something different for the club and a chance for fans to, to see different football. Um, so, aye, overall excitement. Probably not too much knowledge about the Intertotal Cup because there was still a bit of novelty around it at that time. Obviously, there was concerns in terms of fatigue. I mean, for example, the last game of the season before for Fissel was May the 13th, and the opening game was the 25th of June. So there's barely six weeks holiday time and, and training to fit in in between the end of the season and the Intertotal Cup. I remember particularly that season, the English clubs were forced to enter it. They entered it under duress and in many cases did not feel their first teams. And Tottenham Hotspur in particular sustained their club record defeat when they lost 8-0 in Cologne because they fielded a youth team and I believe their first team was out playing a friendly at the same time elsewhere. So that went into the record books whether they liked it or not. Their worst ever defeat. Lambie very much saw the positives of the tournament. In fact, in 2002, when Thistle nearly qualified for a second time, Lambie was quoted in the Herald as saying, I don't understand why more Scottish clubs aren't willing to enter this competition. If it's good enough for Juventus and Rosaire, then it's good enough for us. In any case, I've already told Jerry Collins that if we can get there, we'll be the first Scottish team to go abroad for a fortnight on our first away leg. I mean, if you look at the other teams in the city, Rangers and Celtic, I mean, Rangers, for example, at that time had been to Athens, play AEK, Bayern Munich, Red Star Belgrade, Marseille, Leeds. Celtic had been away to sport in Lisbon, Borussia Dortmund. And he'd been to Switzerland on numerous occasions. They'd had these great away days in the early 90s that we could only dream of, and we were getting a taste of that. And I think Lambie was able to see that and see the benefits of it. Here are what both Brian's thought about Thistle's squad in 1995. It's a pretty good team. I, th- I mean, that's a team that three months earlier beat Celtic at Hamden when Celtic were playing at Hamden at that point to help us stay up. So it was a really good football team, obviously, 95-96 season after that didn't end well but they were heading into our fourth consecutive season in the, in the top flight obviously the team evolved over that time but like Nicky Walker was just a brilliant goalkeeper every Thistle fan of that time will tell you that he was known for being like a backup keeper at, at Rangers and um, we got him for a, two or three seasons and he was just he was just outstanding the back four just pretty solid honest professionals Denny had a couple of spells with us Alan Denny because I think that was his second spell with us I really liked him when I first started watching Thistle late 80s so he, he really stands out Pittman was an interesting one American born absolutely thunderous left foot a bit like Paul McLaughlin or Scott McCulloch just that you know, absolutely massive thighs and he scored quite a, a few important free kicks for us in the league midfield who was that McWilliams Craig Smith Kinnaird 
I can heard you could probably do a podcast on him in, in its own. Really interesting guy. So skillful. Williams was was good and good on that night and, and, and in the four games, I think, as you say, scored and, and was unlucky that night. And of course, we had um, Albert Craig, who was just absolutely brilliant for us. Those were the three biggies. Yeah, there was the other kind of players that were kind of journeymen, I suppose, weren't they? Like, say, Greg Watson, Tommy Turner, and that. Up front, Roddy Grant and Wayne Foster, probably two of the best strikers that played for us in the in the 1990s. Big Roddy was just a really you know good all round striker, especially in the air. One of my favourite players was one that uh, again all my Celtic support and Glasgow pals take the Mickey. Um, Roddy Grant, I loved Roddy Grant. He was just so hard. Like he was honest, uncompromising. He wasn't the most skillful, but you would get a you would get a shift out of him. And I was a really, really big fan of his, much maligned by some sections of the Scottish football support. <laughs> very, very powerful. Didn't have pace, but obviously was quite sharp in the in his football brain to know where to be in the box. And Foster had a really good short spell with us. As I said, he, he scored you know goals at Hamden that beat Celtic. So anyone that does that should be remembered fondly. This all kicked off the Intertoto Cup campaign on the 25th of June 1995 against Austrian side Lask Linz. The one thing we didn't know before it was how good or bad any of this opposition we were going to play were. You didn't really know as much about European football as you do now. You know, we're going into it with our eyes wide open. We might get absolutely pumped four times or we might do really well. In typical Thistle style, before they even took to the pitch, they encountered some difficulties. They had to switch in London between Terminal 1 and Terminal 2. The luggage got left behind. Basically, there was a, a big delay between the baggage handlers and the German plane wasn't there to sit about. They left without the luggage. It was only when they got to the airport in Germany that they realised that all their clothes hadn't arrived, including the suits, the entire team kit, their strips, the boots, the lot. A late arrival saved the day. The assistant manager, Jerry Collins, had to sit in the airport in Germany while everyone else travelled on. It was a very tense affair because it was very much like in the nick of time where they changed over. But it also meant that the chairman of Thistle had been invited to like a formal dinner and he had to go on his trackie because he didn't have any other clothes because they were all stuck in the airport. <laughs> in London, a bit red-faced, turning up um, in his trackie for this formal club dinner when everyone else is all suited and booted. It's a very Thistle thing to happen. We always joke about always having bad luck and stuff in terms of always losing last minute goals and we all seem to have the worst type of luck these sort of things and that really fed into it where by losing all your kit you're bigger European away days and you've lost your kit and you might need to play in like you know stuff at the lost and found. After lost luggage on the journey to Lintz the misery continued on the pitch as Thistle found themselves two down after six minutes. Anton Haydn and Marcus Weissenberger scored the goals for Lintz. Marcus Weissenberger went on to get 29 caps for Austria. Had a very good career in the Bundesliga, where he scored 18 goals and set up 35 more in the 152 games he played. Thistle didn't let their heads drop, though, and quickly found themselves back in the game. Thistle came back with goals from Rod McDonald in the 58th minute and an 88th minute equaliser from Denning McWilliams to grab a point. If anything, Thistle should have won the game, seeing as Albert Craig put the ball in the net twice, only for both goals to be chalked offside. So Lask were actually lucky to get away with a point. After picking up a point in the group opener, Thistle remained optimistic about their chances of qualifying from the group. Rod McDonald in the Herald said, We had a nightmare start, but you must remember we have not played for six weeks. If we can beat Cliff Lavick on Saturday, we will have a great chance of topping the group. We can still get AC Milan in the UEFA Cup. Dreaming about playing in venues like the San Siro, Thistle moved on to their first home game of the group. Thistle's next game was on the 1st of July against Icelandic side Keflavik at Furhill. 
was at the Keflavik game, um, which is weird because it was the, bizarrely the second time uh, I'd seen an Iceland, they were Icelandic, weren't they? Yes. Because yeah. I'd seen a friendly with Stjarnon of Iceland at Firhill a few years before. Um, so it was weird to go and see another Icelandic team. Lots of Thistle fans remember the kick-off being delayed at the 1-0 home win against Morton in the promotion winning season. But that's not the only time that's happened at Firhill. I got the impression that the club hadn't expected that many supporters to turn up, but as it was a Thistle European game for the first time in over 20 years, there was quite a lot of interest. Everybody's worried about things that they posted online years ago that they might get dragged up years later. So spare a thought for Stephen K. Ryan, whose Google Groups reports remain the only comprehensive source of information on the Keflavik and Zagreb games. We contacted Stephen for his thoughts on the games, starting with the Keflavik match. They'd only opened half of the main stand, so at the time of the kickoff, there were still queues outside of people trying to get in, worse than there are in the, nor- the, the usual Saturday. Uh, so eventually, they opened up the other half of the main stand. I think the fact that it happened over summer and the summer football debate has still not died down. One of the great images or sets of images of, is of fans sitting in their strips in the Firhill sunshine watching European football. And <laughs> I think the, the Jackie Husband would certainly have been pretty packed that day, and that's. That's a lot more appealing to a football fan and his family over the summer holidays, especially, to go and see football in the sunshine. It looked to me like there were at least 5,000 people there, but with the wisdom of hindsight, quite common to overestimate the size of crowds. So if somebody wants to say it was only just over 3,000, then then fair enough, but the, the stand did appear to be full. Yes, it's a capacity of just over 6,000, so it would have had to have been packed for my estimate of there being double the number of official fans there. I mean, it is possible that the turnstiles weren't counting people when they let people in, but I don't know, more likely I would say that it was actually just over 3,000. Many remember Denmark when they came off the beach to win Euro 92 at short notice, but a Thistle player had a similar experience after last season's Player of the Year was nowhere to be found. It had been reported on the internet, I think, in the fledgling days of the internet, that Tom Smith had been on holiday in Magaluf just before this game, and Ian Cameron wasn't in the Thistle squad anymore. Ian Cameron's contract had run out, so while negotiations were underway, he was not included in the squad for the game. If memory serves, he had a proper full-time job, and this, uh, playing football was part-time for him, so I guess he had no great obligation to stick around if he didn't want to. Not much was known about Keflavik when they arrived at Firhill. It was much harder to scout teams from Iceland 25 years ago than it is to get information about them now. The match programme from Keflavik game was apparently quite remarkable in that in it we admit that we didn't um, know anything about them. They were part-timers not much was known about Keflavik when they arrived at Firhill. It was much harder to scout teams from Iceland 25 years ago than it is to get information about them now. But with Thistle, you know, you can never tell. Yeah, it looked early on that it was going to be a cakewalk. In the first 15 minutes, the part Time Kefovic's squad looked really out of the depth, with only some exceptional saves from future Hibs keeper Oliver Gotskowski keeping the score at 0-0. The Firhill fans who had come to expect a cricket score in the opening minutes soon became restless. With the Icelandic side in the middle of a league campaign at the time, they used their match readiness to their advantage coming into the game. Then, after 20 minutes, a familiar sight as Fissel went 1-0 down despite being in the ascendancy. Marco Tanisic sprinted past a few defenders into the box, sliding the ball past Nicky Walker and a stylish goal that even the Fissel fans felt the need to stand and applaud. By half-time, Tom Smith had been called upon to clear a possible second Tanisic goal off the line and the booze had begun. If the bandage of abuse from the stands was bad, it was probably nothing compared to the hairdryer treatment he would receive from John Lambie 
that there's visibly bailing on the way back to the tunnel. With the game in the balance, you could be forgiven for thinking that Keflavik had the Icelandic mile story up front for them. As a striker cleaned through and goal, passed to an offside teammate rather than putting the ball into the net, saving Thistle from a defeat. Well, Keflavik were 1-0 up at this point and it was in the second half that they managed to get a 2-on-1 against the Thistle keeper. So one player ran ahead and his teammate side-footed the ball to him and he scored. And a chap behind me in the crowd shouted offside. And I thought, you know what, that actually is offside. It's the most blatantly obvious offside I've ever seen that I totally missed it. And whether or not that spurred the linesman into action, but I'd like to think he was doing his job properly, he did raise his flag and goal got chopped off to uh, much amusement because if they'd just done it properly, they'd have been 2-0 ahead and Thistle would have been in, would have been in all kinds of trouble. Thistle then rallied to win 3-1. But the signs were there that not everyone had been keeping up with their fitness during the six-week summer break. After Roddy Grant scored towards the end of the game, I think, um, he ran back to the halfway line and then stood waiting for the kickoff with his hands and his knees clearly out of breath, which caused some amusement. So he probably had come back from somewhere not fully fit. I think when we won that one, we said, oh, we could go somewhere here. We could, um, we could progress in this tournament. We came away from that opening game having gone two goals down, if I remember, that came back and got a draw. Won the home game after that, which put us in a really good position going to Mets, that we were genuinely you know, still in contention to, to finish top, although we knew we were, we were going to play a, a good side. So, And Mets was clearly, for many reasons that we'll go into, was just the highlight, not just of the, that summer, but of supporting Thistle over 35, 40 years. Up next for Thistle was probably their most memorable game of the group as they travelled to France to play Mets. Now, here are Brian Welsh and Brian Gregg reminiscing on a magical weekend in Mets. When the draw happened, playing a team just over in France gave everyone the opportunity to, to actually go and sample it as well. So I think it was mainly excitement, but a wee bit of caution. And that's probably just standard emotions for, for Thistle fans, isn't it? In 1995, getting to Mets wasn't as easy as just hopping on a cheap budget airline. Back then, air travel was expensive. So fans had to travel different ways to keep costs down. Aye, the, you, the, we got the bus, a bus return from Kilcadden's to Mets and a ferry from Dover to Cali and it was £49. <laughs> what? £49? £49. Now, it was either £49 or £59. I'm pretty sure it was £49. That just, you, and they, you know, they filled, I think it was six of these buses. Whoever organised it will be able to stand that up. But £49 for all that, pretty good value, obviously. I really like... Obviously, the day, this was 1995, so I, I remember we, we drove down to a guy's house in Finiston like two nights before it and literally posted our check through the door to make sure we could go. It was just so old school. And it was me and, me and my brother and four other pals, so £49 to go. And I was quite lucky to go because my dad, I always went to Thistle Games with my dad. He couldn't make the trip. So for my mum and dad to let me go as a 16-year-old is something I'm always grateful for because I'd be gutted if I, if I hadn't made it. Well, in terms of the trip, it was um, interesting to say the least. Uh, we kind of decided last minute a group of us that we would go. So um, I don't know that many of us had a passport, and I know that myself and one of the other guys went down to our local post office in Annie's Land at the time and got a you could get a one year visitors passport, then a paper thing that you just paid for at the counter with no no checks, no documentation. Did that? That was about thirty six hours before we left for the game. Uh, got the bus at the station bar in Kirkadens. It was like late Friday afternoon. Let's say it was leaving at five o'clock. We would have got there shortly before then and the place was just absolutely mobbed, like spilling out in the streets, people drinking, bagpipes playing, 
STV at that point were just over the road in Cowcans. They were out there filming it for Tea Time News. In fact, I checked this before I came on. Wimbledon was on at the time, so it was this epic semi-final between Andre Agassi and Boris Becker up in the big screens in the pub. And some fans had probably been in there since the start of that. Just a well-oiled army of Thistle fans must have set off about five, six o'clock and got piped off. Getting piped off on legs of journeys was a recurring theme of this trip. And um, there we were travelling into the night. And clearly, at the start, peaks and troughs of any long bus journey and at the start it was just sheer euphoria it was like surrounded by guys you know enjoying a drink and a good sing song and um and that was when the when the journey was going smoothly and then things started to things started to happen uh, across the journey but we, we 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 the first leg was just getting down to dover late that night and and catching the ferry almost through the night and you know people were starting to nod off in the late part of that that leg but again you get on the ferry everyone's woken up drinks available again and and the sing song start and I always remember we were on that ferry and one of the Thistle fans took his top off in front of everyone and went to do a big cleansman dive and he took this massive run up to a a big wooden floor and he he jumped on it and the floor had clearly just been varnished and the guy just went like stuck and the place went up again just daft wee moments like that and and, um, (laughs) but we got off the the ferry at the other side, and, and I think I mentioned the sense was that from Cali to Mets wasn't going to be that much of a journey. It was maybe an hour or so, and it just it clearly wasn't going to be the case. I think people got a bit more fuel for the journey at, at, at Cali, and off we went, and we saw the sign for Mets at one point, and it was like three figures, and we just thought, oh, no, this is going to take a long time. So It's, it, it's it, near Luxembourg, isn't it? It's like the aye, side of the country. Aye, you, you wouldn't go that way anymore, whether it was £49 or not, that's for sure. <laughs> and all was going well until we got to... Fr- it was totally uneventful trip. We had Neil Sturgeon, who's a fit pal of, you know, soul boy Davey B, David Belcher. He had written the, the music for his Thistle musical. He was on the bus, so we were singing all of his songs. And that was all delightful until we got just the other side of the channel and the other coach that was with us broke down. So our 53-seater uh, became a 106-seater. Um, and I don't know what the temperature was, but um, they were very sweaty, lycra and uh, thistle top clad drunken men uh, trying to squeeze into our seats for the remaining sort of six hours to Mets from there so it was uh, it was interesting journey uh, to say the least so it was uh, it was mental before we even got to Mets we were we were probably lucky we were quite far down the front the further you went back the more ridiculous it got like the bus would turn a corner and like a tsunami of booze would just come down the floor under your feet and you'd lift them up I hope it was booze anyway. So yeah, the toilet must have been a pretty rough place, but uh, you just you just kind of tolerated it. It was the days before, well before mobile phones, so everyone was just entertaining each other, and um, it was probably that leg f- through France on the Saturday morning um, that was that was the toughest bit of the journey because it was roasting hot, people with hangovers. It was a longer distance by probably five times than anyone appreciated and then one of the buses broke down and suddenly we had 100 people in the sweltering hot running late for a place that was much further away and it was that was pretty tough so but we just soldiered on and the the the, the kilometer count came down and it all became worth it as we we get close to Mets. Following Thistle Abroad is something that some fans can only dream of so what was it actually like being in Mets during the day of the game? For us, anyway, it would have been early afternoon from memory. The game was an evening kickoff, 
Um, I think we were hoping to get in for about lunchtime. Again, people will correct this, but vague recollection is that it was early afternoon. We knew other buses were ahead of us. We were really absolutely knackered, dirty, sweaty, just wanted to get there, wanted to have a shower. Um, and then we just, the, the closer you got to the Mets, the more excited you got. And then we got into the Mets. And I can't remember how far it was from the outskirts to the centre. It doesn't really matter. But you just started to see little bits of red and yellow, then more red and yellow. And it just, it, you felt like you were driving into a Thistle home game. Suddenly you got near the town centre and there was just red and yellow everywhere and fans waving flags, strips on, drinking in the town squares. And it just, it was one of the most uplifting moments as a Thistle fan of all time, for sure. Um, and at that point, it, it was just like the weekend is on, it's match day and we, it was so, so good. From that point, it was just the, definitely like seeing Thistle win leagues, win Cups quarterfinals to get to Hamden and all that, but definitely the best Thistle supporting experience of my life was that kind of next 12 hours. It was just phenomenal. Well, when we got there, it was it was brilliant actually because um, Brian Welsh, who I think you may be speaking to for this as well, um, his dad either taught French or um, just spoke French really well and uh, this was pre-internet. So he had booked us a hotel and we got an Ibis, which was right in the city centre as we got off the bus, literally. So everybody else was sleeping under benches and finding God knows where to stay, uh, and we had a hotel. How did an away day to France differ from an away day to Ayr or Inverness? Well, we'll obviously caveat this and say, you know, uh, um, no under 18s should consume alcohol, but um, <laughs> we, 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 we'd booked a hotel, quickly went and had a shower, then went back into town where all the Thistle fans were, and just found a pub, and I, I, I was quite a baby-faced 16-year-old, so if I, if I had been trying to order alcohol back home I had no chance but in France they were a lot more um, relaxed about it so the boys in my party were taking great delight in sending me up to the bar which I was really enjoying because I was getting served but they were just using me to get them get the round in every time so it wasn't a problem um, and then well, I think we bought we bought six pints six of us and it was quite expensive and then a Thistle fan just ran over to said boys boys don't do that there's a there's a big kind of hypermarket over there, just go and get a couple of crates, it's dirt cheap and come and sit in the square and we went over and did that and that's just, it was the wee French stubbies and we're just all sitting in a big throng and just, sun was shining, thistle fans everywhere, a wee bit of culture because you're in France and using your standard grade French to talk to the locals and you just did a couple of hours of sheer bliss, That you know that that period before any thistle match is always really nice when you're with your friends, you're drinking, socialising, chatting. Um, and to be doing it abroad was just like everyone was just in an absolutely brilliant frame of mind. Um, again, the paper started coming out, and all the locals were, were starting to realise what was happening on their doorstep, and just kind of observing this mad, you know, five hundred plus throng of of Scotsmen in red and yellow and kilts, just enjoying themselves. How did the locals respond to an army of red and yellow Scots coming over to support their team? Started wondering the game uh, along with all the Mets fans and my abiding memory of it because nobody had mobile phone photos around and then I think there's a photo of it somewhere is me and a couple of the guys that I went with on the back bumper of a wee Renault van um, driven by Mets fans it was so low to the ground because I don't know how many of us were hitching a ride um, going at about half a mile an hour in this sort of cavalcade of Thistle and Mets fans all going to the game together. There was not a hint of throwing 
fairy liquid into fountains and all that stuff. None, none of that was happening. It was just people singing, enjoying themselves and, and mixing. And it was just a perfect pre-match build-up. Whether it was a couple of miles from where the town centre was, again, we got this piper at the start and we all kind of marched en masse, probably like the Tartan Army do when they're, they're away for Scottish games and we're just marching through the town. And on the way to the game, that was quite civilised. It was just people walking behind the piper singing songs and waving to the locals and on the way back it was just taking up a notch everyone was like um high as a kite and like there was vans driving along and there was like six or seven thistle fans standing on top of these vans while they were driving and it was it was just it must have been quite a picture for the the, the residents put it that way it was a completely i don't know whether it's false memory syndrome but a completely just benign atmosphere. Everybody was all pally, and it, it was it was brilliant. Um, you know, lives, lives longer in memory than the, than the actual match, to be honest. After such an alcohol-fueled journey to Mets, and then a boozy day in the sun, it's a wonder that our fans can actually remember anything about the game. But here are some of the memories that they do have about the 90 minutes. What happened on the park probably is just helped by those you know, limited highlights you still get. Everyone talks about, you know, a few, a, there's a few things everyone talks about to do with the game. Probably, first thing is, Mets were much better than us. It probably should have been more than 1-0. We weren't awful that day. I think we, they, it was 1-0, it wasn't it, to them? And um, their goal came from, I think, Alan Denny could have done better. <laughs> Thistle were going through some managerial upheaval and the game against Mets marked Murdo McLeod's first game in charge. So how does Thistle's squad fare up against the squad of Mets? Here's Mark Wallace to talk us through the strength of the French League in the 1990s. That sort of period in the sort of late 90s, Mets were a really, really good team and nearly won uh, the league. They lost uh, out on the league in goal difference in 1998 to Lons. So like they were really really up there at the time, and at a time when Ligue 1 was until PSG started spending silly money. Like even when Lyon won the seven in a row, there was never any real sort of dominance. In goal was uh, Jacques Songo, the legendary Cameroonian goalkeeper. Jacques Songo, who's the current Cameroon goalkeeping coach, he won La Liga with Deportivo. 
he actually left Mets for Deportivo in 1996 at the end of that season. He went for uh, 5.8 million. Patrick Mboma, very good career uh, on loan at Mets from PSG this summer. He's won African Footballer of the Year. Four times was he top scorer in his domestic divisions. He's 33 goals in 58 games for Cameroon. Won the French Cup with PSG, the French League Cup with Mets and PSG. Italian Cup with Parma, African Cup of Nations in 2000 with Cameroon. He also won the Olympic gold medal in Sydney with Cameroon. Jocelyn Blanchard as well, a defensive midfielder. Very good career indeed. Went to from Dunkirk to Metz this, this summer in 95. He then left at the end of 98 to sign for Juventus for £5.85 million. Pounds. Uh, the last guy is an absolute diddy who nobody has heard of, called Robert Perez. 51 goals and 22 assists in the Premier in Ligue 1. Uh, 63 goals and 34 assists in 198 games in the Premier League. Absolutely, absolute fraud, mate. Uh, left Mets for Marseille on a free in 1998. Went from Marseille to Arsenal for £8.82 million in the summer of 2000 after setting up the winning goal at Euro 2000. The fact Perez was playing just gives you an indication of the, the standard. But Thistle really did kind of do pretty well to keep it to that. And looking at that, it's a pretty solid Thistle 11. And that that stands up to the fact that against a really, really good side, um, you know, it was only 1-0. We played quite well. We might have nicked a draw. And it also, looking at them, to be fair, that does corroborate with the fact they were back in the pub very, very quickly because there's a lot of characters in that team, for sure. Derek McWilliams hit the post which was definitely our, our, our biggest chance. I do remember uh, Derek McWilliams um, was sort of having a weird season at the time, or just before that, for us, he'd been scoring goals one week and then been awful the next. And he, my abiding memory of the actual match was him ballooning a potential equaliser, possibly into Luxembourg, <laughs> I think, over the bar. Uh, I, I haven't watched it back on YouTube for years, but I, I'm pretty sure it cleared the ground. But the, the main thing about the game was just literally it was singing for 90 minutes and I remember being on that being in the stand looking on at the side and at one point your, your arms were hurting because they were just up there constantly and it was just the atmosphere was was, was phenomenal um, you know before and after the game mixing with the Mets fans swapping scarves swapping shirts shaking hands with the police getting apl- Thistle fans getting applauded out and all that because we just added to the atmosphere Met, for Mets at a home game against a, a lower you know lower of the top league Scottish team probably wouldn't have been that big a deal um, but I think we made it a bigger occasion than it, than it definitely would have been so 
fans of other Scottish clubs in the area at the time, like Motherwell Strip and a Dunfermline Strip, kind of just joined the game because they'd been holidaying nearby. And so it was just the football, can't remember too much. It was a, still a pretty, that was quite a strong Thistle team for the time. Um, they were much better, but it was the atmosphere that totally stands out. They definitely embraced us. The Scottish, the, the Scots, as a travelling force at that time, obviously had a pretty good reputation from behaviour at major tournaments and stuff. So I think there was a, probably an awareness. You know, we were there to have fun, whereas you know, when other nationalities travel, that that's often not the perception and the reality for people in towns and cities across Europe. So um, they they definitely just enjoyed it. And for the you know the bars and restaurants, definitely the bars would have had a cracking night that night in terms of income. With the magical weekend drawn to a close. The trip back home from Metz was still able to pull out another memorable tale or two. The way, aye, the way back, like we, we, it was just basically got up on the Sunday morning, then you're away. So I think we got up on the Sunday morning. I'm trying to remember when we would have got home. We might have got home like very, very early on the, the Monday morning or something. I can't, I can't honestly remember. But the way home was just a, a, a big, a big long slog. Really, it was everyone was sleeping, so it was a lot more subdued. I, 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 again, you remember, you remember daft things. I remember we watched Pulp Fiction. On the like the, the days of watching videos on buses, so we watched Pulp Fiction, and for some reason we watched the film Speed, which is all about a coach having to keep up a certain speed to avoid being blown up, and it must be the worst choice to watch. <laughs> um, but these these were clearly films out at the time that some guy up the back probably got in pirate video, and we ended up watching them. But it was it was it was pretty subdued. I can't remember whether. There was one other really iconic moment which loads of fans will remember when all the buses had stopped at the same service station and it might have been we were waiting and one of them get repaired so they all kind of decided to stay and so we ended up spending about an hour and a half in a service station whether it was two or three buses I can't remember but a football emerged out of absolutely nowhere and this like 30 a side game of uh, football in a car park in the middle of England motorway country bro- broke out and lasted about 45 minutes and at one point someone bloated the ball and it went trickling down the hill and across the motorway. I'm not telling a lie. And then one of the Jags fans has just uh, ran down to get it. He's checking on the traffic, sprints across. I mean, can you can you believe it? <laughs> I know, even to say that out loud, you're kind of frightened now. But um, it was just, it was such a laugh. As the bus rolled back into Glasgow, there was one last twist in the tale as the fans on board found out that the fans who'd missed the trip had been having their own party back at home. Um, and then we only found out about this later, but apparently, because the only way to find out scores those days was Teletext. And I don't know if you've heard this, but Teletext put up the wrong result. They put up that it was Mets nil, Thistle one. So <laughs> all the fans back home for like a brief moment thought we'd won, and we're probably having an even better night than us. But uh, I'm sure I'm sure it was quickly fixed. But I'm, uh, I was watching the Mets game on CFAX, and if I'm not mistaken, at one point they said that Thistle were one nil up. And then they corrected it later on, which was highly disappointing. But it's not often that CFAX would make a mistake like that. This only did a win. And for other results to go their way when they faced NK Zagreb at Furhill on the 22nd of July in their final game. Coming into the Zagreb game, there was still an outside chance of qualifying for the knockout rounds. Because there were 12 groups. Each group winner would go through to the knockout round along with the best four runners-up. So... Even though Thistle had a played three, won one, drawn one, lost one record, uh, there was still an outside chance of getting, being one of the second best runners up. The, you know, the usual Scottish position, not unfamiliar to followers of Scottish football, but you know, we might have managed to squeak into the runners up spot if we'd won by a lot of goals. But uh, in the event, even a win wouldn't have been enough because 
um, all of the best runners up had at least eight points, so we, we couldn't have made it anyway, even if we had beaten Zagreb. One thing that Thistle have in common with NK Zagreb is that they're often overshadowed by big city rivals. Dynamo Zagreb are to NK Zagreb what Rangers and Celtic are to Thistle. Richard Wilson from the Yugoslav Football History Podcast give us the details about NK Zagreb. I mean, for NK, they actually go back all the way to um, a club called Pnisk, which literally is, was called the first football and sports club because they were the first football and sports club in Zagreb. That lasted about five years before they went out and reset up as a club called HSK. Um, so between then and the end of World War II, they're a fairly irrelevant club uh you have sort of three main clubs in zagreb which is gradansky hask and concordia when you come out of the second world war those three clubs get dissolved by the state because they played in the wartime leagues and that's something that happened across yugoslavia um the only sort of club that really continued at the top tier from day one was Hajduk split um NK Zagreb basically take over what used to be Concordia Zagreb. Um, and from that, they take over the ground Kranjevacheva. Kranjevacheva isn't a ground that was just used by NK Zagreb. It's always been used by multiple clubs. So Lokomotiva, uh, who are in, who are pushing for second in the top flight at the moment and are currently the second club in Zagreb, play every home game there now and it's one that's even been used for internationals. Much like Thistle, NK Zagreb have also endured a long wait to return to European football. Throughout the Yugoslav area, spend a considerable amount of time in the top flight. In terms of getting into Europe, there were, they only had three ties prior to the 95-96 season, when obviously they faced Thistle, um, which was 64-65, they were knocked out by Roma. Uh, the following season, 65-66, was Steagol Rosu Bratov, which is um, which is one of the Romanian Red Star clubs, and then at the end of the 60s by Charlois of Belgium. This was also the final group game for Thistle's opponents, NK Zagreb, and they were no strangers to playing away from home. The 91-92 season, when Croatian clubs walked out of the league basically halfway through, walked out of the Yugoslav First League, um, as obviously they declared independence in the middle of it. Um, you have, at that point then, the Yugoslav Wars, but the Croatian, Croatian football continues. You have certain sides which can't play at home, um, such as the most famous one um, that we'll know in, in Scotland is Osijek. Um, obviously played Rangers in the... Uh, Europa League a couple of years ago. What you have in the first ANL season is they have to basically scrap relegation because what they found was that the, perhaps unsurprisingly, the four teams who were playing in an area where they couldn't actually play any home games were the bottom four. So they sort of came to senses and thought, well, actually, this probably wasn't a very, <laughs> it wouldn't be a very good idea to demote all of these sides. We'll just let them off with it this time and expand the league. A lot of the reason why they couldn't play there was, wasn't due to the actual war itself. It's because the games were scheduled in the evenings. Um, in the mid-80s, um, Kranjevacevi was refurbished for the, uh, univer- the World University Games. Just after the games, a bolt of lightning hit the floodlights 
and basically blew the electrics in the entire stadium. They wouldn't be fixed until 2007. <laughs> NK basically unable to play any evening games because no one ever got round to basically paying for an electrician to come round. In 1995, Croatia was still quite a new country, emerging from the Yugoslav Wars. So how did this conflict affect Croatian football at the time? So Zagreb itself wasn't actually impacted too badly by the war in terms of direct damage. There were a few bombing raids, but it never actually got to the doorstep. Um, You have most of the fighting in the east at the start um obviously the national icon that is vukovar the uh bullet-ridden water tower that you find is a very prominent nationalist symbol in the country now once that sort of calmed down in 1992 early 1993 the war itself moves into bosnia and you focus on the bosnian wars rather than the croatian war of independence by the time you get to when uh, this elevating NK, essentially the war's done and everything is back together. But from a footballing perspective, you have a dramatic drop in the standard of play and the standard of player in the league as unsurprisingly, anyone who had much of a future wanted to make sure they were out of a war zone where possible. Um, obviously, when I've spoken about them, sort of put very firmly that they are the second side in Zagreb, but that wasn't to say that they didn't have some real quality players. Uh, I mean, part of them being in the Intertoto in the first place was from the contribution of a guy called Robert Schwehar, who had moved to Ostia by the time um, this, this game came around. But his guy who was scoring a goal a game in the Croatian league and then moved on to become one of the best goal scorers in Belgium, eventually ended up playing for Monaco, uh, Sporting Lisbon. You also have Zelko Šopić, um, who I think scored the first goal. So he, again, becomes a Croatian international of sorts, as much as um, with Croatia, you have sort of these um, internationals where they're built solely from players from the domestic league. So he got a couple of caps from that, but he eventually joins from NK directly to Borussia Mönchengladbach. Um, and they obviously have, although it's not at this time, but a player, an NK Zagreb player who a lot of people would be aware of, uh, was of course Ivic Olic, um, who then went on to play for a long time at Bayern Munich and generally be a pain in the backside for any defence. <laughs> Usually the unveiling of a new signing would be cause for celebration, but in this case it was bittersweet as it confirmed the simultaneous departure of fan favourite Roddy Grant. Uh, yes, he played in the Kepler game, but not the Zagreb game, because uh, he had already gone to St. Johnson, and in return we'd get uh, Harry Curran. Now, this was just before John Lambie left to go to Falkirk, and a cynic would suspect that maybe he was making transfer deals in Thistle's behalf, knowing he would be leaving, uh, in such a way as not to disadvantage Falkirk, if I could put it like that. So I'm not sure if he should have been allowed to continue to make transfer deals when he was well known to be going to Falkirk before the start of the following season. But that's the way it turned out. Thistle had trouble breaking down the NK Zagreb defence throughout the game, but that shouldn't have come as a surprise, as NK had a reputation for keeping the score down back home, as Mark Wallace explains. When it started back up, in 1991 or 1992 sorry 
Uh, Zagreb finished second behind Hydrux Split. They only conceded nine goals in 22 games and only finished three points off the top. Second season, they finished third. They had the joint second best defence in the league. The 93-94 season, they finished second again with the best defence in the league. 94-95, they finished fourth with the joint best defence in the league. 95-96 season, actually, they went on to finish fifth with the third best defence. All I can see 25 goals in 22 games. Thistle actually had the ball in the net first from a Steve Pittman free kick, but he had taken the kick way too early and the second attempt was spurned. After a shaky start, Zagreb started to show their defensive quality, limiting Thistle's chances. Zagreb used their positional play to their advantage, going in the attack. After 30 minutes, there was a breakthrough as Thistle defenders made a basic error by not chasing a ball that looked to be going out of play after the clearance from Nicky Walker. Zelko Sopic then confusingly set up Zelko Sojic with a cross that Sojic tapped in. Thistle tried to retaliate quickly, only to nearly cost themselves a second as the defence made a trademark blunder. Tommy Turner then had to make a saving tackle practically in the goal line with Walker beaten. The last chance at European glory were dashed with 15 minutes left when Zagreb launched another breakaway, this time with enough of an advantage that Robert Regner was able to hold the ball up on the edge of the penalty box to set up Azmir Zafic to fire into the net. Tension spilled over on the pitch as Thistle player Steve Pittman punched an NK Zagreb player. Yes, it was most unusual to see that kind of thing in uh, on a Scottish football ground. I mean, there's always been diving in the game, but Zagreb, as the game went on, they just chanced their arm more and more, uh, niggling off the ball fouls, the kind of things you, you might have traditionally associated with uh, South American football and the inter- Intercontinental Cup and that kind of thing. But, you know, like kicks off the ball... Uh, running past the goalkeeper and throwing yourself dramatically to the ground long before UEFA had cracked down in simulation. So if you dived, I don't think you would necessarily get a booking for it. So uh, that didn't help with the quality of the spectacle. They hadn't scored a goal at all up until the Thistle game in the competition, so maybe they were becoming quite desperate. But um, yeah, the, the crowd didn't like it at all. And... Um, there was an incident late on where Steve Pittman took revenge. Now, he'd already been booked at this point, but one of the Zagreb players was uh, harassing him. So he grabbed him and ripped his shirt and like whacked him to the ground. And this was right in front of the linesman. And either, I don't know, he was distracted, which seems unlikely because it was literally right in front of him, right in front of me as well, uh, or... He just let it go because of the way Zagreb had been playing, but Pittman got a standing round of applause for that and totally got away with it. And um, the Zagreb player later on described him as deranged in an interview. But still, it was the highlight of the game for me and I'm sure a lot of other people who were watching it. Not that I would advocate violence on the football pitch. Fisser then restored a little bit of pride before the end of five minutes to go when the man who had been traded for Roddy Grant by St. Johnson, Harry Curran, scored in the 84th minute to bring Thistle back into the game. However, they were unfortunately unable to muster any other sort of offence and the game finished 2-1. With a 2-1 defeat to Zagreb in their final game, Thistle failed to qualify for the last 16 and their inter-total dream was sadly over. Mets, they beat Cialu of Romania in uh, the round of 16. Mets lost in the quarterfinals, uh, 2-0 to Strasbourg, who went on to reach to get a place as one of the winners. You had four teams left, and the two winners would qualify for the UEFA Cup. Tirol Innsbruck versus Strasbourg, Karlsruhe against Bordeaux. First legs, 
Tirol Innsbruck and Strasbourg drew 1-1. Bordeaux won 2-0 against Talsruhe with goals from Christophe Dugary and uh, Daniel Dutoul. The second leg, uh, much more academic. Strasbourg won 6-1 against Tirol Innsbruck. Uh, Bordeaux, uh, they, they drew with Karlsruhe in the second leg 2-2. Uh, they were 2-0 up through uh, two goals from Vicente Lizarazu. Bordeaux reached the final of the UEFA Cup because they qualified for the Total Cup. If results had went Thistle's way, we could have been playing Bayern Munich in the UEFA Cup final. We could well. Since then, Thistle fans have dreamed of another European away day. So to finish off our look at the Intertoto Cup, we asked Thistle fans who are Intertoto veterans and the younger generation where they would like to go to follow Thistle if the Intertoto Cup ever returned. Every Thistle fan who was there wants to do it again, but most of all, we just want guys like you and the younger generation to have that in it. I wouldn't care if it was where in Europe it was. It's, you know, apart from the fact we're in lockdown right now, it's pretty easy to get about and you know just to experience that one time, one more time. We've not, obviously, over the years compared with other clubs, had had these opportunities and had these highlights, and it feels like. Surely, by the law of averages, or these things coming in cycles, we'll, we will get the chance to sample it at some point. Well, the, bo- the boring answer is mates, but um, can you imagine good, good that question. pub owner? Can you imagine that pub owner if you told them that Fisher were coming back twenty-five years later? Jeez, you just walk up to the pub. I've left my wallet, mate. <laughs> I'm back. So I know Mets was quite an experience for for the people that went there. Um, you still see pictures of it at Firhill of the crowd at the Mets game. I would still cheat and say maybe 1860 Munich or Unterhaching or one of the clubs in the Munich area, Augsburg. That'd be a good one, Augsburg, because that's just a, a wee trip down the road. Angus pronounced, is it Hammerby? It's in Sweden. Uh, I'd really like to go there because I'd love to visit Stockholm. I think it'd be quite an interesting place to go. It's not exactly the most visited country, so it'd make a good, uh, I don't know, couple of days out for Jags fans who went over there. Might be a little bit unrealistic to be playing in Inter Total Cup because they did finish in the top four in Swedish top flight last two seasons. But I still, I'd love to go there. It's quite an interesting one. I think it'd be quite a memorable trip. Probably unexpected tie as well. It's not exactly the, probably number one in a lot of people's list of places to go to watch Vessel play. But I just think it'd be really interesting. From looking at you football in the region for so long, I mean, I think the best club at the moment would be a team called NS Mura, who uh, the very competitive in the Slovenian top flight at the minute, but they are the team in the region who have the best fans. You sort of have the ultras culture without the illegal activities that go on with larger ultras in the region. You know, I think there's, there's so many beautiful cities in Europe, somewhere like um, Budapest or Bratislava or something like that that's not too far away, but you know, a beautiful city. Uh, you know, going to France would be great because it's, I think they've, you know, Although we, most of us went by coaching ferries, there, were, there was people going by all different routes, so that it's not too hard to get. I think the further you go, the more of an obstacle it is for some fans. So anywhere except Connorkey Nomads, please. There's so many kind of wee baby backwatery places, wouldn't it? I would quite like Italy, um, somewhere down the south, that would be nice. Um, but I've got a romantic notion of somewhere daft like Cork City. I love going to Ireland and I haven't been for too long and I think a weekend in Cork would be, I think that would be just, that would be very thistle. There's no dialogue we'd end up with, I don't know, Fleetwood Town or something like that. <laughs> hopefully draw an Irish team soon in the, uh, the Challenge Cup. We've yeah, gone a few that years in that without getting a wee that trip. Would be 
we've got a few photos, obviously, from some fans who took cameras, uh, but there's just so there's so few pieces of evidence that the trip took place compared to what it would be like me now. It'd be like 24 7 um, oh, Thistle yeah. Away Day TV, you know. So um, I think that just adds to the mystique a wee bit. Another place that I'd love to go would be in to port any team, pretty much in Portugal. It's another country I'd like to visit. Been watching a lot of Portuguese football during lockdown because there's been quite a lot of matches on three sports. So it's kind of piqued my interest in the Portuguese league. I just think it makes for a good holiday, to be honest, as well. Not just the football, but make for a good holiday for fans travelling over there. And it'd just be a great game to go watch. I know their fans are very passionate about football over there, as are fans in Scotland. So I think it'd be a great game to go watch. I would really like to go somewhere that would be quite, would be quite nice, but at the same time, I'd quite like to have a game that we, quite, that we could possibly win. Maybe somewhere on the Baltic coast, somewhere in like maybe Lithuania or Estonia or something that would be quite nice. Latvia, maybe Lithuania, you know? It is a sort of a very formative moment for yourself in the sense of getting that sort of trip when you're 16. Like if you're like 25 or 30 or something, obviously it's still going to be a big thing. But like being that sort of age, it's like going to your your, your first gig or something like totally. that, isn't it? Just yeah, just you know, getting getting to do that away day, it's absolutely something that really forms you as a person and as a Thistle fan, so to speak. I my my dream destination. I studied um, the country of Albania at university. I've done a lot of stuff about like communist history and stuff like that and I ended up doing my dissertation in Albania. There's lots of like beaches and stuff like that and like the, the city themselves, like the country just fascinates me so much. So if I had to choose, it'd be Partizani Tirana in Albania. That would be my dream one. Either that or I want some mad Central Asian adventure. I want Kazakhstan or Azerbaijan. I don't I don't want like Burnley or anything like that. You want to go as far as humanly possible to watch your team get beat 4-0. Do you know what I mean? Like, make Dingwall look like nothing. Karabag or FC Astana, something like that. If I couldn't give Partizani Tirana, those, that, those would be mine. I, I just thought about it there. I was watching this Copa 90 documentary and it was about Ibar, the La Liga. And they've got Scottish fans that I think they're fan groups names like Scotia Labrabra it's something like that. Since then, I've adopted Ibar as my Spanish team. They are actually not bad. They've got a small stadium as well, so and it's a team in the Basque region. So yeah, definitely, I'd, I'd say from my first uh, destination would be Milan, and second would be Ibar. If you look at Thistle's kind of CV in the 1990s, we 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 got promotion at Firhill on a day when the opposition should have had a penalty and not given us promotion. We won the ten and sixes. We played an Intertotal Cup. We had financial ruin. We had saved the Jags. We had like Wamby being thrown into the sea at Blackpool. We just—it was the most mental decade. It really was, um, from start to finish. And that like the Intertotal Cup, right in the middle of it, was, was probably, in some way, the the peak of both the madness and the fun. This was an episode of the Draw, Lose or Draw podcast. It was narrated by Matt Greer and edited by David Forrest and George Twig. Written by David Forrest and Matt Greer. The contributors in alphabetical order were Kieran Ashton, David Forrest, Matt Greer, Brian Gregg, Jamie McDonald, Stephen Mulrine, Mark Wallace, Brian Welsh, Richard Wilson of the Yugoslav Football Podcast, available on all streaming platforms. Thanks to Craig Walker, Nick McFeet, and everyone who contributed information. Draw, Lose or Draw is a podcast available on all major streaming platforms. 
we can be found on Twitter at DrawLoserDraw. Unfortunately, I'd, I'd have loved to have gone. And as I said to you, I can't believe it's been 25 years since I've had the chance to see in Europe again. I know. It's likely to be another 25 years, I think, before <laughs> we're back in. That's a delight. <laughs> <laughs>